Hi, everybody. Welcome to this Master Investor Masterclass, where we're talking about uh, investing in the age of longevity. And in particular, in this session, we're going to be talking about the science of longevity. Uh, my name is Phil Newman. I am the founder and CEO of First Longevity and also the editor-in-chief of Longevity Technology. Let's introduce our panelists today. Uh, first up, we have James Lawford Davis, who's a partner at Hill Dickinson and who specializes in uh, life sciences and health tech regulation and uh, litigation. Welcome, James. And we also have uh, Paulina Mamashina, who's the chief scientist and chief operating officer at Deep Longevity, the Hong Kong-based company that uses deep learning and bioinformatics to identify biomarkers of aging. Hey, Paulina. Hi, Phil. Good, and uh, we have a, a pillar of the longevity scene, Reason, uh, co-founder of uh, Repair uh, Biotechnologies and editor of Fight Aging. Always good to see you, Reason. Hi again. And uh, Eric Vadin, who's the CEO and president of the Buck Institute for Research and Aging in San Francisco. Welcome, Eric. Good to be here, Phil. Great. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us here today. Let's jump right in. Uh, lots has happened since uh, Longevity Week 2019. Uh, so let's talk about the last 12 months and understand whether we've seen a further validation or not of the uh, progression of longevity science and, uh, and its reality. So, Polina, let's, uh, let's start with you. You're, you guys have been very busy at Deep Longevity. Lots going on with you, I see. So what's the last year, last year been like for you guys? All right. Yeah, it was great, actually. So we spun out Deep Longevity from Silicon Medicine. And actually, a couple of months, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we've been acquired by, I mean, we're still subject to acquirement by the public company in Hong Kong. So for us, it was a really fast exit. Uh, we started as a company in 2019. And then uh, in July, we raised funds. And now we are acquired, which is great. Um, in terms of like, what been new in the field, I believe that we are right now really close to having validated biomarkers of aging out there. And that's a huge progress in a whole domain, because right now we can actually validate new anti-aging therapies that can um, check their efficacy. Um, presumably, we can also check their safety, but it's something that help us to you know, even do in future clinical trials on, on longevity interventions, which is great. Very good. And um, I understand you've been doing some work with the FDA or at least talking with the FDA. That's interesting. Yeah, we had some discussions like parts of webinars or webinar series. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's something that we, we will still have to do. Uh, we'll be, uh, FDA is probably ready to talk right now on um, how we can uh, solve any regulatory issues or some of the regulatory issues with biomarker aging, uh, but still there are a lot of things we will have to do uh, before we can have first uh, biomarker aging used in clinical trial. Right. Well, of course, uh, biomarkers is a big subject, and I'm sure we're going to touch on that later. Uh, Reason, how about you? Busy year? Well, I'm obviously I'm running a company here, so I barely have time to think. But I, I will say that the thing that's caught my attention in the last year is possibly a little mild for, for me, but um, gut, uh, the gut microbiome, there's, there's been a significant amount of, uh, of, of new information and new advances in that part of the field that make it look very ripe for, for people to come in and start companies of, um, 
of a variety of types. And really, we've only had, I think, two or three groups do this, and they're doing it in a very narrow way. I mean, obviously, we have Viome, and we have the folk doing um, the, the athletic bacterial type that makes you healthier. Um, they want to deliver it as some kind of probiotic or, or its output as some kind of um, you know, supplement. But I think there's, there's a tremendous chance to really improve the health of older people here based on simply applying the existing technology of fecal microbial transplantation uh, to a sort of to a to a parabiotic a sort of approach where you take young people young donors and and bring their gut microbiome over to old people in a safe way and, and most of the safety aspects have already been sorted out for the use that this technology is put to in conditions where your gut is overtaken by pathological bacteria and the results in animals have been quite eye-opening. So I, I feel that this is a, a area very ripe for investment and development. And whoever gets in here first is is going to be quite quite fat and happy at the end of the day, metaphorically speaking, of course. Unless they participate in some fasting, of course. Good. So uh, James, how about you guys? Uh, Hill Dickinson, you've been busy over these last twelve months, I'd imagine. Uh, we have. Yeah. I mean, I. I look at the science through the somewhat tinted or you might say tainted lens of policy and regulation. Um, and it's fair to say that for, for a lot of companies, it's been a tough year unless they're manufacturing PPE or anything to do with COVID vaccines. Um, that said, there have been some notable positives, I think, on the policy front and in terms of regulation. Earlier at the start of the year, it was really reassuring to hear the Secretary of State for Health um, reconfirm the government's commitment to longevity, speaking at the all-party um, parliamentary group. Um, and internationally as well, I think there have been some positives. Most recently, and Eric will know more about this than me, I, I think the, um, the vote in support of refunding CERM in California to the tune of 5.5 billion uh, is a really positive step and a, an extraordinary sum of money uh, to support research in this area. Um, so I thought that was a, a positive sign about the public support for, um, for regenerative medicine and, and longevity. And then in terms of regulation, having mentioned COVID, I think it has actually been very encouraging to see that where there is a, an agreed and coordinated um, policy agreement that, that a particular area or a particular um, aspect of research is identified as a priority, we can make sure that approvals are expedited and can get through very quickly, as we've seen um, with some of the vaccine applications. And I think it's it's quite interesting to think about how that, that flexibility and adaptability could be used in other areas in the future if government or governments agree that certain areas need uh, need targeting. So some positives, some silver linings from a otherwise somewhat cloudy year. Right, okay. And Eric, um, a lot of work going on at the buck, I'd imagine. How's the last 12 months been for you guys? Well, it's it's been quite an interesting year in the US for a number of reasons. Um, COVID-19 in some way um, just reminded us of the importance of, of the work we do. Um, the, the fact that uh, the disease uh, disproportionately affects in, in, in a in negative way, the elder uh, has really brought again, uh, this um, uh, a need for better understanding of what, what, is the, what are the mechanisms that underlie aging 
and how can we mitigate them, not only you know, to prevent the disease and, and its worst outcome, but also looking forward in, 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 in 2021, we're going to have a number of vaccines available. And um, we know that under normal conditions, only about 30% of people above 70 years old will respond to the flu vaccine. And we cannot expect any different from, from COVID-19. Uh, and, and the vaccines that are going to emerge. So I think the problem remains uh, and uh, will be further exas exacerbated uh, if we want to conquer this epidemic and protect the people who are most at risk. We will need to better understand the reason for uh, immune failure uh, as we age. And in this respect, I, I think that the year was mixed in terms of um, research and aging. As you know, we are in, in a key transition period where we are trying to translate all of this base, these basic discoveries into um, deliverable. Uh, and we've seen this year uh, two uh, pretty visible failures of clinical trials, which I think uh, is an important reminder to, to all of us how easy it is to do uh, and to discover basic mechanism in the laboratory setting and how hard it is to actually translate these discoveries into humans. I, I think the field has taken these failures in stride because it is the fate of actually most trials uh, will fail. Um, but uh, the silver lining is that uh, one of those will work. And so uh, we're starting uh, 2021 soon um, with renewed hope and excitement about uh, all, all the different opportunities that we have in this field. Very good. Well, of course, there's a, there's a science panel today that we're, we need to do, dig, dig into the science of longevity. Now, senolytics is one of those areas of therapies that is attracting a lot of attention at the moment, um, targeting senescent cells that have reached the, uh, the limits of their division, but obviously forgotten to die. There's a lot associated uh, with this science area in terms of anticipation and investment activity. So, um, the downside of that, of course, is that it's not proven yet. There are some issues associated with that. And you mentioned, obviously, some of the trials that have, that have failed there, Eric. So you know, how do we separate the, the positive side of uh, senolytics and senolytic therapies uh, from their potential dark side? What do you think, Eric? Well, uh, again, uh, yeah, one of the, the trials that failed was the Unity uh, trials on the osteoarthritis. Um, uh, I think uh, despite this failure, there are a number of reasons why this trial might have failed uh, that actually give us renewed hope that uh, the approach might still be valid. Uh, the field of senescence is uh, right at the beginning. Um, again, uh, the interventions and the, um, the drug trials in, in animal models have been uh, nothing short of remarkable. Uh, so I, I remain really uh, bullish about what the, the, this technology will bring. Um, However, the basic science and the research also tells us that it is a lot more complicated than we had estimated at the beginning. There are multiple forms of latency. Uh, there are multiple mechanisms of induction of latency, of, um, of uh, senescence. And, and one therefore can anticipate um, that complexity is going to be required to tackle the different forms of, um, of senescence. And I think this is pretty much where the field is. Um, for forging forward uh, with uh, synolytic trials. I think Unity is conducting other trials right now in the eye. There are still some significant concerns about uh, systemic toxicity. Um, and this is why um, Unity is, is into targets in essence cells in unique uh, compartments. So initially the knee for osteoarthritis, and now the eye uh, with glaucoma and, and macular degeneration. 
I think there are some others who are actually targeting a more systemic systemically, uh, Jim Kirkland and Mayo Clinic has been conducting some uh, preliminary trials, some of which actually have been promising, but again, we're really early. Okay, and uh, Paulina, what, what are your views on the, uh, the field of analytics? Yeah, I agree that we are a bit early there. Again, the dose might be an issue. Again, how you target the therapy and also where, where you will stop. For example, if the, if the tissue is already so senescent that let's say 70% or major percent of the, of the cells that are damaged and you are kind of applying the therapy, uh, maybe it will be just too much. We, I'm just thinking about, let's say, we will use it for rejuvenate skin or we use, uh, remove cells, senescent cells in the skin. If you just reduce so, so much of the cells, I mean, that will be just too much for, for human, a lot of side effects. Uh, and um, again, I, I believe that uh, we're still yet to uh, identify a set of markers that will be really specific to synoptics in humans, so we can measure the efficacy and whether those markers are actually correlated with mortality and lifespan, whether they're, uh, let's say, uh, increase or decrease in certain markers that's suggesting that the therapy is working uh, would be connected to the increase um, or decreased risks of mortality or all-cause all mortality or other specific mortalities there. So those uh, factors will still have to be defined before we can actually go uh, and say that, yes, um, in some way, those therapies are um, benefiting the lifespan and the healthy human lifespan. So we still we have to find set of markers for, for those. Okay. And uh, reason what's your view on statistics? Well, I'm not a scientist by profession, so I don't have to be quite as conservative as, as the rest of you in order to maintain my scientific credentials. So uh, I think that the senolytics in animal models are the most impressive thing we've seen since induced pluripotency in the sense that it is really, really easy for any lab to up and destroy senescent cells selectively. And to the extent they succeed, they get very, very impressive benefits reliably in mice. I mean, life extended, disease turned back, things that you would think are not reversible, like cardiac hypertrophy, actually reversed in animal models. It's, it's very impressive indeed. And, and I feel I could go out on a limb here and say, I believe that the most important drug for Alzheimer's of the next 10 years will be disatinib. Um, and we will find that out quite soon, as there is a trial set up for that, uh, that's starting round about now-ish. Uh, these these are very important, very important drugs. Um, the upside is so huge, and the the various first generation analytics have very well understood safety data. Um, frankly, I think the the community is doing far too little right now to be out there getting the necessary human trials going um, based on based on what is known. And so it's a little over cautious, perhaps, given um, given what's out there. So in the sense that there are downsides, potentially. I mean, for example, there was the, the bit about NAD plus upregulation, maybe increasing the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, um, and the, the ongoing question of, are there cells that are senescent that you don't want to destroy? Um, and all of that is, is you know, you, you can, these effects exist. The effects are always there. The, never, the question is never, are the effects there? They are. The question is, how big are they? How big is the effect size? Do we care? Um, and to the extent that mice are living longer because of this, that suggests that we should um, 
we should we should forge ahead on this. And people have been using drugs like dasatinib in very aggressive ways for cancer. Um, and we have any any amount of data that shows that that you know volunteers taking it once look pretty good. Um, we should be doing more. That, that's my take. Well, that's, that's good to hear because there's a lot of work going on in this space. And we've seen a number of, um, uh, let's call them supplements that have come onto the marketplace, making some claims around the uh, the area of analytics. So, so James, as the line starts to blur sometimes between therapy and supplement, what's the, the legal view on how companies should be going to market with these with these claims? Well, um, like reason, I'm not a scientist. Um, uh, but unlike reason, my job is to be very cautious and precautionary. Um, and I'm sorry if it sounds like doom and gloom by contrast, but the, the concern about claims falls, it, it straddles two different legal um, areas. One is the, um, the issue relating to medicines regulation. So you can get into a lot of trouble if you make claims or you advertise and promote a product which isn't licensed and that varies depending on which jurisdiction you're in and it varies enormously between countries but certainly in the UK it's a criminal offence to market or advertise non-licensed medicinal product. And it's also relevant to your um, to, to your application if you do then seek to take a product to market if you're making claims about what it can do and that's one of the, the things that the regulators will always look at. The second consideration um, is related to that and that's the advertising um, Regulations. So again, in the UK, we have very strict rules about what you're allowed to do by way of promoting and advertising uh, medicinal products. And again, if you make claims about a product or about a therapy, um, you need to be able to substantiate that, ideally with um, clinical data. Uh, but you can, again, get into quite hot water if you make unsubstantiated claims about um, a new therapy. The temptation is always there. Um, but there are many, many examples of people overstepping the mark in terms of what they claim. Uh, and um, again, caution is, is advised, but I'm biased, so I'm, I'm bound to say that. Yeah, caution when, where there's an audience of people that are actually in some cases uh, very interested in pursuing quite radical uh, self-experimentation. So, so uh, Eric, in relation to this line between uh, therapy and, and supplements um, and the blurring of that in some, some cases. What, what, is, what is your opinion on this? Uh, I think it's important to remember how we got here and where we are today. So if you look at what, what's been accomplished in the last 150 years, there's been an increase in lifespan of close to 35 years. And it's been based on, on science. It's been based on demonstrating efficacy. Um, so I think uh, if the, the field of aging wants to establish true legitimacy and recognition, I think it will, it will have to prove that its interventions are actually um, efficacious. Now, um, there's something else that's happening, which is quite interesting and which I embrace, is this idea of, uh, that uh, a significant fraction of the population actually feels that they are at, that it's in their own right to take measurable risk and to uh, to adopt some uh, therapies even before they have been demonstrated uh, to be efficacious. And I think uh, I also support this as long as there's um, some evidence for safety. Um, and we see right now a proliferation of a number of supplements, I'm thinking in the NAD space, the beta-hydroxybutyrate, the esters of, of, of ketone bodies, um, alpha-ketoglutarate is another one. 
we see many of those coming to the market um, without any claims and and with the possibility for people to test them out. I think in the long and I think this is totally fine. Many of those are are likely to be very safe, um, but it will be important in, in the future uh, for the the true clinical trials to be conducted and for efficacy to be demonstrated. So I, I'm of two mind. We've also learned that um, th there's been some frustration with at least in the U.S. with the speed at which the FDA um, uh, approves drugs and how difficult it is. Uh, one reason for this is uh, there have been a number of instances in the past where approved drug have actually still even proved to be toxic. So there are many reasons to be cautious, but there are also, there's also, we've seen with COVID-19 that the process can be accelerated. And I think uh, I would embrace the sense of urgency that we had for COVID-19 for therapies that target the aging field. And so there's a lot of movement right now. Uh, and I think this is, this is good. So we can expect things to change for the better. That's good to hear. And generally recognized as safe or grass supplements is something that uh, we're covering a lot uh, on our news platform. So Therese, what is, what's your thought about this uh, bridging the line between therapy and supplement? Well, I'm, I'm very in favor of, of, you know, let the market figure out efficacy. Uh, it, you'll get you'll get faster results than if you want the regulators to only approve things that are efficacious. Let's let's show safety and then let people figure out you know what what works because that way you're actually much more likely to get a market that's sizable enough to support um, randomized controlled blind trials um, in which you can rigorously prove that something actually works when people think it does. And the money will be there for that if you have a pre-existing market, but you can only really do the pre-existing market sanely um, if you show safety. So of course, the, um, the history of these things includes cigarettes um, and everybody who thinks that the FDA type regulatory path is the same way to go probably looks with horror at the cosmetics regulatory path and vice versa because they are radically different. Um, and in terms of how much work you get to do before you, you let people just go take the thing and consider it safe. And as Eric points out, um, frankly, it doesn't matter how much regulation you throw at the problem, you're still going to get some fraction of, um, some fraction of new products shown one year, five years, 10 years after the fact that, wait, that wasn't such a good idea. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Um, so I, I think there's definitely a, um, I, I like the pressure that supplements put on the medical industry, but on the other hand, very few things on the supplement side of the house are actually efficacious enough to care about. Um, and whether that's, whether that's a coincidence or whether that's just a, um, a matter of people looking under the light for things they can use that happen to vaguely tickle mechanisms of interest, I'm not sure, but, uh, I think that, that supplements would have to get a lot better than they are right now in order to be a really interesting place. Okay, that's good to hear. And I, I guess, um, Paulina, in, in your work, uh, developing biomarkers as you are now, you must be very absorbed in seeing what uh, people are doing with their therapeutic intake as well as their supplement intake. Um, what's, the, what's the view from, uh, from the uh, deep scientist? Great. So, um... Let's say that supplements are more accessible compared to something that you have to prescribe. Therefore, if we think about healthy people, and this is the group we are generally focused on when we're trying to understand the uh, efficacy of those uh, therapies or their effect on, on aging process, uh, it's a bit 
tricky to get uh, them on any of the medication that has to be prescribed, especially in states, in the case the same. Uh, so unless they have a doctor who kind of understand the aging process and, for example, prescribe them metformin that's considered to be generally safe um, and um, has been shown um, to work against some of the aging processes. And we know that uh, there are retrospective studies uh, and um, meta studies showing that uh, pre-diabetics on metformin, they live longer compared to uh, in healthy people, let's say our average healthy people. Um, and we know that metformin works in none of those drugs that is uh, the, the promising one. Um, yet it's again, a bit tricky to get people um, taking metformin. For supplements, it's a bit easier, but in supplements, we already see that um, not all supplements, they work in the same direction and the dose and also the, um, uh, the schedule, uh, people are taking those supplements is, is really important. Even with fasting, they can go not in the right direction with their blood parameters and therefore their biological age. Same for supplements. Um, if they are overdosed with the supplements or they just taking them for too long or continually taking them um, without any breaks, um, it, that could then damage their uh, biological age and blood parameters not in the right direction and potentially have some side effects because we know that the biological age is associated with, with the risks of uh, developing uh, disorders. So in having something that is not working in favor and kind of uh, making the, the clock ticking faster uh, it's 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 not good. Even though they're safe, still uh, I suggest to to have a physician who understand how things work to to prescribe those. So at least suggest you on a dose, or at least know how to adjust the dose uh, once you're on the supplement. So you are let's say guided in the right direction. Because again, with, even with fasting, with with some diets, it can be uh, rather damaging. And I guess that. Uh, the lay person does need clinical guidance, uh, I, and I do feel that there's a there's a big layer missing in the industry at this stage. Uh, that that clinical sure. layer, that educated clinical layer. So let's move on, as this is an investment uh, session, to to ask the panel what they feel is uh, good and investable in the longevity space. And just while we were talking to you, then Polina, you you've been doing some work now by deploying your tech into the clinical environment and training conditions. So with that and beyond that, what what do you feel are the hot areas of uh, longevity? investment over the coming period? I think those longevity clinics uh, that are emerging right now, they're hot areas. Uh, that will be actually the tool uh, that will de deliver first aging clocks to the general audience, but also therapies. Because again, you have to prescribe those. Uh, you have to adjust this uh, most of the time. Even diet has to be adjusted. Uh, you have to educate uh, people uh, what they should take. Um, and in some countries, some of the therapies uh, that we discussed already today, they are only under prescription, so they have to be prescribed. So I believe that those uh, longevity clinics, there will be really good um, investment opportunities for um, in the near future. Okay, and uh, reason I know that you've you've been very keen on pointing out how there are where the gaps are in terms of some of the commercialization of uh, science uh, in longevity. What do you feel are perhaps the areas that are active and and hot associated with this field? Well, I think if you are obviously I'm I'm a sens enthusiast when it comes to the view of aging, the the areas in which you're going to have high expectation of producing large benefits and you're not just messing around with tinkering with the metabolism of late stage disease. 
I think that there are, the interesting way of looking at that is that there are some narrow areas, um, single target areas, and there are some very, very, very broad areas um, and nothing in between. So what you're seeing right now is considerable enthusiasm for the narrow areas, the single target issues. And that would be, let's say, clearance of senescent cells. Um, you have one target, those cells, go get rid of them. There will be a few winners in that marketplace and there's a lot of competition to get there and the winning will happen fairly quickly in the grand scheme of things. A decade from now, you know, we'll, we'll pretty much know what we're doing for the next 20 years when it comes to senescent cells. Mitochondrial function, same story. One organelle, uh, make it work better. And 10 years from now, we'll, we'll be a lot further along knowing what we're going to be doing for the next 20 to 30 in that one. Where most of the investment will end up going over the next 30 years is not these things, because they will be won quite quickly. Where most of the investment will end up going is into clearance of metabolic waste and stem cell function. There are a hundred and something different types of stem cells in the human body, more getting added every passing year. Um, and metabolic waste, I mean, there's 20 different types of amyloid, 20 something types, never mind all the rest of it. Um, if you look at a company like Underdog Pharmaceuticals, which is focused on clearing 7-keto cholesterol via a sort of small molecule type of approach, you could have a hundred of those companies in this industry, each of them targeting one specific, um, one specific form of waste. And these things can grow quite big. If you look at the companies that are currently tackling transthyretin amyloid, for example, um, if you have success there, you become a multi-billion dollar company, and that will be true for every single form of molecular waste in the body that causes meaningful damage. And that's probably a hundred plus forms of molecular waste. Uh, it's, it's a very, 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 very large industry, and that is going to be the enormous hinterland. And people who get ahead in that, and when I say people, I mean investors, uh, investors who get ahead in this way of looking at things, I think are going to find themselves very well placed rather than competing in the narrow areas of senescent cells and mitochondrial function. Oh, that's very good to hear. So, so not not a not a shortage of things for investors to look at in the field of longevity, in in, in your opinion, reason. And um, Eric, you're at the front line of a lot of new and early stage uh, R and D. Where do you feel that the new opportunities are going to be for investors? So I think, uh, well, I don't, don't completely agree with reason. I think uh, one of the, uh, the most robust uh, intervention that has been shown to modulate aging in, in all animal models we've tested is calorie restriction or you know, modulation of dietary intake, which is uh, incredibly complex. And that's where I differ with reason. I feel that these fields, we're, we've just barely begun to scratch the surface in understanding what is the, the, the underlying mechanism that explains the, the profound effect that we see with uh, a calorie restriction? Um, and that includes, by the way, actually increasing disposal of, of damaged tissues and proteins via autophagy. So I, I really view the whole damage uh, disposal issue as part of the, uh, the, the, the calorie restriction response. So the, the field in this, in this respect is moving to try to understand uh, what are the multiple pathways that are activated? And this has led to the creation of a, a, a slew of, of, of the identification of a slew of targets and, and their attendant drugs that we call actually calorie restriction mimetics. And uh, your audience will probably, probably be familiar with the rapalogs. Rapamycin is, is one of those um, uh, calorie restriction mimetics. The same goes for metformin. Um, the same goes for uh, NAD modulators. 
So these are the, the first line drug in, in this very broad field of calorie restriction mimetic, but we see many others coming that are, uh, there will be uh, second line, including drugs that activate autophagy. Um, autophagy is a process of uh, self um, digestion that specifically targets uh, misfolded proteins. And so we can, we can see now a specific autophagy activators um, so I, I view that space, the more we are digging in into uh, the relationship between nutrition and, um, and longevity, the more we identify the complexity and, and, and new drugs. So I think to me that remains one of the, the biggest area of immediate and future invest, investigation. I'm also quite interested by um, the intervention that today actually yields the, the biggest net effect in, in terms of longevity for, for, for humans is actually exercise in all of its forms. And there is a lot of um, uh, effort, there are a lot of efforts right now underway to try to understand how does exercise actually maximize a lifespan and a health span. And so targets again uh, here are being identified and there's an intensive search for what people call the exercise mimetics. Uh, short of exercising, and not, not all of us want to exercise. Um, if, if you are able to exercise, I think this is probably the most important thing that you can do today for your longevity. But in the future, uh, we envisage a future that's made of uh, specific drugs that might actually recapitulate some of the beneficial effects of exercise. Interesting. So really no shortage of opportunities for investors to participate in the in the field. Uh, you, you guys are at the top of your game. So interested to know what actually gets you out of bed in the morning and uh, gets you thinking about uh, your work and, and, and the field of uh, longevity. Uh, James, let's let's start with you. Um, thanks. Well, I, I wouldn't want anyone to think that Brexit gets me out of bed in the morning, but I think the coming year is going to be very interesting in terms of how we adjust to a new world, uh, both hopefully, uh, God willing, post-COVID and post-Brexit. Um, and in legal terms, it is, it's quite exciting because you don't often get to a point where there is such a level of uncertainty about how the regulatory landscape is going to evolve. Um, the other topic that's very close to my heart, which I probably talk about too much, but something that I do think is gathering momentum again and is likely to be um, a growing uh, issue for the next 12 months is genome editing. Um, it's had a quiet year, but I think that just the volume of research and um, interest and investment in genome editing is going to lead to a greater demand for its clinical approval and, excuse me, um, and use of, and, and um, approval for clinical use, which kind of goes back to the point earlier that we were talking about in terms of the therapeutic versus non-therapeutic use, because there the policy arguments relating to genome editing are radically different when you're looking at therapeutic applications compared to, to non-therapeutic. Um, so, so that's something that I'm, I'm quietly confident is going to come up again in the next 12 months and certainly gets me out of bed. <laughs> Good. And the reason I, I get the impression that you do quite a lot of uh, thinking and uh, quite a lot of uh, wrangling of some of the subjects that you deal with, whether it's editorially, editorially or scientifically, uh, what's, what's, what's interesting for you at the moment? Well, obviously, I mean, I run Fight Aging, so I see a lot of stuff going past and, and it's really hard to pick out 
things that are tremendously interesting because there is so much interesting work going on right now um, that's that's going to be very influential on everyone's lives in five to ten years from now. Um, you know, getting me out of bed in the morning, I run a company, Repair Biotechnologies. We have a tremendous platform for eliminating cholesterols and uh, and damaged cholesterols from the body. Uh, the human body can't normally do that, um, and we have shown that we can meaningfully reverse atherosclerotic lesions in mice uh, to a degree that's that's up there with the best of what's been achieved via a variety of other methods that can't be translated into humans, whereas our method can. So we're we're having that that glorious end of preclinical phase moving into the clinical phase right now. It's a it's a um, a very exciting time for the company, and uh, we hope to do a great deal of good in the world in the years ahead. Good. All, all things changing in the U.S. market as well with the uh, with the new administration as well, of course. So, Eric, Eric what's what's your view on uh, exciting projects that you're dealing with that you could perhaps share with us? Uh, you mean right now? Yeah. Um, well, we, you know, there, again, uh, an, another area that we are uh, quite interested in is um, ketogenesis. Um, there is um, we, we published a paper um, a little bit more than a year ago. Um, a couple of years ago, showing that uh, mice on a ketogenic diet actually showed an increase in health span and, and a, a remarkable preservation of memory. Um, we actually have a, a product coming uh, on the market um, that recapitulates many of the effects of, uh, of a ketogenic diet. It's a, it's a beta-hydroxybutyrate ester, so an ester of, of the major ketone body that allows one to, um, to attain a state of, of ketonemia even uh, while being maintained on the on a regular diet, so this is a, a collaboration that uh, between the Buck Institute and Juvenescence, uh, we're quite excited uh, by bringing this product to market. And um, again, this is one of these uh, uh, what we call calorie restriction genetics. It'd be interesting to see uh, what are the um, uh, how this type of approach is, is received and its uh, its effect in the long run. Very good. And Polina, I, I guess you're spending more time looking at code than uh, than cells. Uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Right. Yeah. I think the the whole industry that I see that it's emerging right now. We have so many investors coming who are like just only solely dedicated to investing in um, in the startups that are working in the aging field. So Apollo Ventures, I believe that you have uh, latent them on the panel, uh, Longevity Vision Fund, Longevity Fund, all of those, Juvenescence. As Eric said, so that's a whole new ecosystem emerging again with wellness clinics, with companies like ours and Reasons and other companies who are working on uh, either new uh, markers of aging that will help us to validate therapeutic, uh, new therapeutics or new therapeutics uh, and longevity interventions. That's really exciting. And I believe that soon we will have uh, new uh, clinical trials and human showing the efficacy of aging. Uh, actually, uh, some of those results have been already published by Professor Steve Howard. He recently published um, really preliminary, but still first results uh, in humans, how we can reverse a biological age. Uh, so uh, the year, the coming year will be really promising. And um, thinking about COVID, um, I believe that it's actually should change uh, consumer behavior a lot. Uh, because we know, again, that's a geriatric disease. We know that uh, it's... Uh, chances of uh, getting complications of COVID because of age increasing dramatically. 
therefore, we have to be focused again on aging side of it. At the same time, I believe people are more cautious about their own health. So uh, the way making decisions, the way are they are um, uh, behaving is, is going to change and it's changed already just because of COVID. So I believe that uh, it will be different both, let's say, from consumer, but also from the industry perspective just because of that. So in, in relation to behaviour change, uh, having a panel of experts to answer a very basic question is an interesting one for somebody like myself. So, Pelina, maybe just back to you. So what are you doing yourself uh, for your own longevity? You know, are you, you must be seeing some interesting stuff that uh, you're putting through your biomarker systems. Right. So I'm right now in a bit of a break in terms of supplements. I've been on some supplements a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm taking only like really basic general stuff. Um, and but what I'm do daily, uh, what I do daily, I do uh, measure my biological age. So we have an app uh, that helps me to do that. So each day I do at least a selfie, and then I measure my blood um, once. Um, I would say every every two months, every three months, I measure my blood. Probably a bit too often, but still, it's something for me to um, uh, to, to to track, and then. Uh, try to measure my my sleep, my stress levels. It's not easy again, given the fact that we have this uh, year with a lot of uh, uh, complications due to COVID and all that, travel restrictions and so on. Uh, but still, uh, so I'm trying to optimize that from the beginning again, because we know that those simple st things, they work a lot. And I already see that um, in terms of my biological age reversal, just by optimizing my sleep patterns, and my excess schedule, I was able to, you know, just like get rid of two extra biological ages for, yeah, recently. Yeah. Great. So, so the youngest person on the panel is getting younger then? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Chris. I don't know. Okay. We need to measure your biological age, then we can, we can compete only in biological age. Chronological True. age doesn't matter much. Okay, good. And James, how about yourself? Uh, well, I, yes, I have four children, so um, I think I'm suffering from premature aging uh, as a consequence, but I'm running a lot, uh, so I focus very much on exercise, not doing quite so well on um, dietary management, but uh, I've been very impressed by the uh, the positive effects on the level of exercise just in, in my community. I sit at a window, I think most days half of the village runs past um, my window, which I think reflects the a newfound love of exercise um, in the UK, at least well, this part of the UK. But yeah, just just exercise for me. Good. And uh, reason I bet you're up to a few interesting things. Yeah, one suspects that this newfound love of running in the population at large has a lot to do with um, not being able to allow, not being allowed to go anywhere other than outside. Right? It's um, it's it's the way things go in this this present plague year. So, I mean, obviously you do the things that are high expectation you calorie restrict, you exercise. Um, these are things that you can comfortably do um, if you're in 99.9% .9 of the population and expect to obtain benefits. But if you're going to self-experiment, you have to measure. You can't just do something and then think, and then think better of yourself because A, you're probably not doing it well enough and uh, B, um, some people don't get benefits that they think they're getting from um, from the minor levels of whatever they're doing um, on the grounds the placebo effects are a real thing and self-delusion is another one. You have to go do blood work. You have to pick up assessments that make sense for what you're trying to do. 
and then look at before and after. Um, and on that topic, I should say that it's it's not terribly clear that these these uh, aging clocks are actually actionable. Um, for example, the epigenetic clock, the original one, doesn't seem very sensitive to exercise. You can be sedentary, you can exercise, you get the same you get the same epigenetic age. There was a twin study that that um, that showed that. So you have to think about these things a little bit. There are a lot of options out there, particularly for people who want to be adventurous and go out there and get actual drugs um, and use them, such as analytics. Uh, and obviously, a great deal of personal responsibility goes with that. So there are many options. It, it can be quite the hobby, um, but one should think about this carefully and approach it sensibly. Okay, and uh, Eric, how about yourself? Um, so I, I there, you know, one thing that to realize is that there, there will be drugs uh, in our future that will uh, increase longevity and health span, but. Um, I'm convinced that, that, that this time has not come yet, and um, at least verified, you know, demonstrably efficacious drugs in terms of aging. So uh, I, I think we're all of us are left to optimizing everything that that we can optimize, and and there are a number of factors that I think are really key. Uh, nutrition is one. Um, uh, in, incorporating some fasting, and I do incorporate some fasting in in, in my routine. Um, um, exercise and, and is, is really uh, one of the key uh, in terms of demonstrated effect in terms of longevity and health span. And it's, you know, there's a lot of research trying to understand what form of exercise is it aerobic, anaerobic, uh, stretching. Uh, it, it seems to be a mixture of all of them. So um, that's really one of the, the focus of, of my effort. Uh, stress reduction uh, is really key. Uh, focusing on your microbiome. Uh, is also a key, and that's also part of part of your nutrition. And and I always tell people uh, the most important thing that you can prob probably do, at least when we look at uh, the major risk factor for longevity, um, uh, are your social uh, network. That is, so if, if your interventions in your lifestyle, uh, with the hope of increasing aging, makes you turns you into a curmudgeon who has no friends, you probably are um, missing the point. So. Uh, a social network is the strongest predictor of, of your longevity, as is a sense of purpose. So I think uh, I try to mix all of this together in some harmonious uh, mix. Um, uh, I think this is what we can all aspire to. Well, that's probably a good opportunity for us to, to pause there. So that's good, wise words, Eric. So well, I'd like to thank our panel. Unfortunately, we're out of time today. Uh, we've had uh, a number of uh, questions come through the chat channel, which we'll endeavor to address at the end of the session. So it only remains me to, to thank our panelists today, James Lawford-Davis of uh, Hill Dickinson, uh, Paulina Mamashina of uh, Deep Longevity, Reason of uh, Repair Biotechnologies and, and Fight Aging, and uh, Eric Verdin of the of the Buck Institute. So thanks very much for your time today, everybody. I really appreciate it.